Welcome to Episode 5 of the Yellow Ladybug Podcast Series 4, Supporting Autistic Girls and Gender Diverse Students at School and Beyond. This podcast series is brought to you by the Victorian Department of Education and Training. In this episode, we'll be looking at supporting autistic girls and gender diverse individuals in early childhood, in the tweens and in the teen years and beyond. This is a three-part conversation combining three of our conference sessions with a team of fantastic panellists who offer both lived and professional experience. First, we'll be speaking with Sally Baker and Raylene Dundon with a focused exploration of what internalised autism can look like in early childhood and advice on supporting preschool-aged autistic girls and gender-diverse individuals in a way that is neuroaffirming and that recognises their hidden needs. Next, we will chat with Tiana Andrews and Frances Brennan, two lived experience experts who will share their advice and perspectives on supporting autistic tweens through the difficult waters of puberty, friendship, self-identity and more. And lastly, Shadia Hancock and Sienna Chumbley-Conton, two passionate youth advocates discuss some of the big issues for autistic teens, delving into topics including identity, masking, risk-taking and stepping up into adulthood. Let's get underway. In the spirit of reconciliation, Yellow Ladybugs acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend their respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. everyone, I'm Natasha Stahili from Yellow Ladybugs. Welcome to this focused half-hour session, the first of three panels that cover the journey from early childhood through to the tween and then the teen years. For this session, we're excited to do a deep dive into early childhood, where, as we all know, so many of our autistic girls and young people may be flying under the radar. Joining me today to shine the spotlight on autistic girls in early childhood are two experts, both of whom bring lived autistic experience as well as amazing professional knowledge on this topic. A warm welcome back first to Raylene Dundon. Raylene is an autistic ADHD educational and developmental psychologist author and parent to three adult autistic children. She is passionate about supporting neurodivergent children to understand and accept who they are and to empower them to be themselves in a society that still has a long way to go in celebrating difference. Hi, Raylene. Hi, Natasha. Thanks for having me. Welcome back. And next, and a big welcome to Sally Baker. Sally is the neurodivergent mother of three teenagers and has worked in early childhood education for over 18 years. She believes that being neurodivergent herself gives, gives her unique insights into supporting autistic children in their early years so that they feel valued for who they are. Welcome, Sally. Hello. Nice Hi. to be here. <laughs> hey. Okay, it's so fantastic to be having this conversation with you both. So we're just going to get straight into it and get started with a bit of a dive into what autism might actually look like in preschool-aged girls, especially those who have an internalised or non-stereotypical presentation of autism. We know that the signs can be very subtle or even hidden, so let's draw some of them out. And Raylene, we'll start with you on this. Thanks, Natasha. 
Um, so as you've already mentioned, one of the tricky things about identifying autistic girls in early childhood is that they might present with an internalised profile and it just doesn't look like the autistic children we, we expect to see, I guess. So the behaviours we might see could be associated with um, being autistic, but they could actually also be due to anxiety or speech and language challenges um, or something else. So I think it's actually about being curious um, as an educator or an adult and looking for patterns in behaviour that might indicate some underlying differences. So for me, I find that girls with an internalised profile are more likely to present as anxious and that might be the most obvious thing that, that we see. So we might see kids that have difficulty separating from parents. That's often a really big one. Um, they might be situationally mute or minimally verbal in a kinder or childcare setting, but actually have really well-developed speech when they're at home. Um, they might carry a security or a comfort object around with them everywhere. Um, some might uh, seek reassurance from um, the adults in the room repeatedly. So they might want to know if they're doing the right thing or if their behaviour is right. Um, they might become distressed uh, and have difficulty making decisions as well. So they might often defer to other um, people and their opinions um, rather than um, sharing what they like or don't like. They also might be kids that, that seem, I guess, um, they're often called sensitive. So they might burst into tears and cry in response to any difficulty that's happening um, around them. But that, again, is due to that high level of anxiety that they're experiencing. Um, in contrast to that, we also have autistic girls that are presenting in that bossy or, or controlling way, but that's also driven most often by anxiety. So we might see kids directing other children in play, um, telling their friends or their peers that they have to do things in a particular way and what they want them to do. Um, they might insist on only playing their games and playing their way so they won't engage with other children doing different things. Um, they might also become little police and start policing the behaviour of, of others. So they're the ones that, you know, constantly um, telling an adult that someone's doing the wrong thing or telling the child themselves that they're not following the rules. Um, in terms of play, what we might see is um, our girls wanting to play the same thing and wanting to play it in the same way all the time. So they'll go to the same place um, in the kinder or childcare room and be doing, um, you know, carrying out those same sequences or, or playing in that same way, you know, every session, every time you see them. They might like organising and arranging toys rather than what we would see as making a story or engaging in pretend play with them. They might also like to role play the same character and they might actually do that throughout the time that they're at kinder or childcare, not just when they're engaging in free play. And, you know, they might be kids that actually only engage in um, art and craft or things that have clear rules or perhaps sensory activities. So they might stay away from those more open-ended um free play activities and like things that are a little bit more structured. Um, I think I can probably, I know I'm, I could talk forever, Natasha. Yeah. I'm sure that <laughs> Thank Sally you. also has some ideas. 
Absolutely, and you've covered a huge amount of ground there. And I think the key key to- takeaway is that importance of being curious and looking at what is going on. So thank you so much for that. Sally, I'm going to jump straight to you. Yeah, no, that was really good to listen to Raylene's perspective. Um, the signs of autism that I see in preschool aged girls can vary a lot. Um, it's taken me a lot to develop and build upon both my personal and professional knowledge to become a detective in identifying these traits in internalised and neurotypical behaviours that I think are all important for every educator to be aware of. Um, probably the most common behaviours I see in young girls is their big interest in role-playing with other children and mimicking other people as they look for ways to understand their social world and learn about human behaviour and essentially learn how to mask from a really young age just to feel connected to others. Um, I actually view this as a really intelligent way for autistic girls to try and make sense of their world as they're always looking for logical ways to make connections to people and places. Um, I've seen autistic young girls um, be really repetitive with words um, narrate things in the mirror to themselves, um, constantly copying expressions and actions of their peers, um, which can often be misinterpreted as educators might view them as a follower and not a leader. Um, and I've also uh, worked with a lot of autistic girls that have wonderful imaginations and share really extravagant stories compared to their peers, but I love to listen to them. Um, another common sign is anxiety, which Raylene touched on. Um, it can manifest in many ways. Um, I've seen a lot of children become really distressed on morning drop-offs and needing a lot more support um, throughout that time. And sometimes this can take weeks to months for children to adjust. Um, separation anxiety can really be a prolonged challenge for some children, even if they've been at the service for 12 months or more. But that also is a good indicator that maybe their needs and accommodations are not being met to the point where they still feel anxious to come into the classroom. Um, autism can also present as quiet, um, shy, selectively mute, which can be still a very misunderstood behaviour. Um, it's a really accurate representation of myself in my childhood, always trying to appease people, staying quiet as almost a defence mechanism for my own social anxiety. And um, something I'm a lot more aware of now that I'm working with children. Um, some of the quiet and shy girls usually have trouble regulating their emotions and can be seen as more sensitive, um, cry a lot more than a neurotypical as they don't particularly understand how they're feeling or why they might feel overwhelmed. Um, another thing is food sensory sensitivities. I find a really um, unnoticed or maybe misconstrued behaviour. A lot of people's perceptions go straight to assume the child's just being fussy when in fact they're extremely sensitive to things like food textures, tastes, smells, and prefer to eat the same foods or um, plain foods just to avoid any sensory discomfort. Um, another thing I've come along um, to learn as well in diagnosed or undiagnosed girls is that they don't like to be interrupted in a conversation and sometimes their reaction can be anger because it's like their audio sensors are in overload because other people are trying to speak over the top of them. So they sort of get really irritated um, and they're still developing that um, really important language and communication skills. 
So these are just some of the non-stereotypical behaviours in autistic girls, but I find these are the particular traits that I find most common and I've seen it a lot over the years and I think it's really important for educators to use their knowledge and their intuition in identifying things like that. Thank you so much, Sally, and you've you've really shared your knowledge on that. And again, like Raylene, you've covered just the incredible breadth of, of what we might be seeing in that in that sort of setting. So amazing stuff. And you picked on some really important things about being a detective, um, those early signs of masking, um, sensory needs. Yeah, lots of wonderful stuff there. So that actually leads us on to our next question. Um, and we're going to focus on what some of the simple neuroaffirming strategies, accommodations or adjustments um, we could be looking at. What can early childhood educators be doing that can actually support autistic girls and particularly those with more hidden needs? Now, I've asked you each to cover some different topics here. Um, I'll lead you on on each of these. And we're just looking for a really quick answer, um, just some really key takeaways takeaways for our for our amazing educators so Sally I'm actually going to start with you and you've already started by touching on this and that is accommodating those sensory needs around food clothing noise what would you say in a minute that will get will help our teachers with that um, I think when you're thinking about sensory needs and embedding those com, um, accommodations it can really come down to the environment in itself um, so rooms can become very busy and very loud and something as simple as changing the lighting, whether you're turning the lights off, using natural light, um, staying away from fluorescent lighting, or even just using um, fairy lights in play spaces. Um, even using subtle or pleasant smells with a diffuser, um, emphasis on the subtle. Um, creating play spaces that are not built with lots of clutter or resources. I try to remember that less is more. Um, having specifically designated spaces to hang children's artwork, not in every space of the room, using um, calm music on low volume just to give children to be able to control the stimuli in their room and be able to control the tasks that they want to do. Um, and I also like to critically reflect before I move anything in the space, do I need to? A lot of autistic girls need that famili familiarity in the room just like I do. And sometimes I even ask for their input. What do you think we should put in the room? What could we change this to? And some children come up with some really great ideas, but it also lets them know that this is their space just as much as it is ours as well. So environmental, big, big, um, yeah. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Such great advice there. Um, Raylene, I'm going to jump straight to you and the, I guess, the more internal side of sensory needs and emotional regulation, interoception, those sorts of things. So a quick takeaway on that. Um, I think for our kids, particularly um, um, our little people, interoception is a really difficult thing for a lot of children to recognise and understand what's happening in their body and because it does connect to emotions and other sensations as well it's a big one in terms of emotional regulation so it's actually probably a difficult thing for educators and staff to actually have an impact on directly I think what what they can do is really acknowledge and validate the emotional experiences of their ladybugs so even if we as adults feel like um, a reaction is an overreaction or isn't necessary in a particular context we need to make sure that we recognize that that emotion is very real for the child 
and their experience in that situation is, you know, clearly a really negative one if, if they're becoming distressed. And we so we need to acknowledge that and that goes a great way to actually supporting um, those emotional needs. I think the other thing is just to provide opportunities for children to regulate through the day. So if their arousal level is being managed from, you know, with some of those awesome um, sensory ideas that um, Sally just mentioned, um, if they've got opportunities to regulate and, um, you know, that they're feeling calm or matching their regulation to the activities that they're doing, they're much less likely to have big emotional responses during the day and that's what we want. Um, I think we also um, lastly need to be very aware as adults of our own emotional responses to the kids that we're working with and to be aware that our little people need co-regulation. They're not going to be able to regulate themselves uh, when they're experiencing big emotions. And so they rely on us to be that safe, secure person to support them to get regulated again when they're, they're distressed and we can help them do that. That's beautiful advice. Thank you. And I'm so glad you mentioned co-regulation because that is so important um, for our all our people, our little people and our big people. So thank you. Um, Sally, could you touch briefly on how we can support autistic children through those tricky transitions through the day? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like this is a really important one because it can really reduce the anxiety of a lot of children. So I've always implemented the use of visual timetables uh, or the use of time warnings, alarm clocks, and just really effective communication around any changes in routine throughout the day. I think it's really important. Visual timetables have always been a success, successful practice for both myself and children. Um, the days are more predictable. They can lower any uncertainty. Um, like myself, my emotional regulation goes out the window with any sudden or unexpected changes. And I find it a lot harder to have any executive function um, it's exactly the same for autistic girls in preschool. Um, constant talking and communicating throughout the day can reduce anxiety as well. Um, and they have that time to be able to focus on the task ahead instead of, instead of having to think about what might happen next. Um, and just really supporting and coaching them through the transitions. Um, within my teaching practices, I'm just constantly narrating throughout the day, not only to eliminate any unpredictability, but um, it also teaches children effective communication skills as well, which is they're still developing. So just I'm constantly talking. I get sick of my own voice, but it helps, <laughs> it helps them at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I love that, all of that. And um, I was very lucky. My my daughter had kinder teachers who really understood that sort of stuff and it makes a huge difference. Um, it's, it's, yeah, fantastic. Okay, Raylene, can you talk a little bit about those more internalised behaviours that we've covered already around the shy, quiet, compliant, perhaps situationally mute children? Um, how do we support them? So I think one of the most important things that we can do for all our children, but especially our autistic girls who are anxious and are, are masking and have those more internalised behaviours, is to give them safe and secure relationships, to actually really work hard to make sure that they trust the uh, adults that they're working with and, you know, they know that they can go to them for support. So if they've got carers who are unconditionally accepting of them for who they are, that listen and respond, um, they're much more likely to, to feel safe 
um, and to be able to be themselves. So I actually like to use um, the acronym PRAISE, which I know has been used for different things <laughs> at different times, but um, in terms of talking about fostering um, relationships, we can be predictable, make sure that we're predictable and consistent in the way that we're interacting and how we behave um, around our kids. We need to be responsive. So making sure that we're responding not just to their physical needs but also their emotional and social needs. Uh, we need to be accepting of them wholly for who they are and give them that message that, um, you know, they are enough um, and they are perfect just the way they are. We need to be interested and really genuinely, and I know it's hard in a room with lots of children, um, but those little micro moments of, remembering the child's special interest and mentioning it or asking them something that just gives them that little, oh, they like me and they're interested in me can make a huge difference. And then we need to be sensitive to our kids' needs, especially their emotions um, and in tune with that. And then lastly, encouraging them to um, to have opportunities to, to experience different things and be there to support them. So I find that kind of helps frame what we need to do and especially for those little little ones that, you know, are perpetually compliant, that don't share their ideas or um, really express how they're feeling, having that secure relationship will open up an opportunity for them to do that. That is so powerful. Thank you so much for that. And the flip side of this is um, for you, Sally, and that is some of those more externalised behaviours we see, behaviours, um, that are still non-stereotypical in a way. So the bossy girls who want to control everything or prefer to mix with adults in the room, um, how do we support them? And I suspect it's pretty similar. It is. It's very similar to what Raylene said. It really is about building on those strong relationships and making those connections. Um, you know, that those uh, non the stereotypical, you know, bossy girls, they really do have that mentality of it's my way or the highway. Um, and they really need that someone to provide accurate and logical explanations um, because they really do have an answer for everything. But when you build those mutual relationships, um, there's mutual respect. Um, you share parts of yourself with them. They share parts themselves with you. And then they feel heard. They feel valued. Um, and, you know, being bossy or controlling it is a part of just how they're interpreting their world and how they want to control their world. And sometimes it is a flight response as well because they're willing to put up that fight with you. Um, but it's all about the approach and how you speak to them, how you co-regulate with them. Um, and, yeah, that's lot, there's lots of examples I could give in terms of how to interact with them in certain situations to eliminate meltdowns. But, um it comes down to how you know the child as well and how you know how to meet their needs. I love that. Thank you. And, my goodness, we have to bring you back to talk in more depth there. So <laughs> um, that'll be for next time. So just to finish off this question very quickly, Raylene, can you, can you touch on that tricky topic of social and peer connections and creating an environment that allows for different types of play and different types of social interaction? So I think, you know, in, in terms of supporting those social and peer interactions, um, and different kinds of play, that the most important thing is providing really varied opportunities for play activities in a playroom, um, incorporating a child's interest. So if we're aware that 
a child has a particular theme or movie or something that they're particularly interested in or a sensory activity that they love having that available for the child to do, um, which, you know, as well as helping the child feel comfortable and safe in the environment, gives them something to go to that they're confident to engage in and an opportunity for other children to join them in those activities. Uh, I also think it's important to set up areas that allow for solitary play or play in pairs or then larger group play so autistic girls can choose the sort of social interaction and environment they're most comfortable in at different times and that will change throughout a session or throughout a, a child's time at childcare or kinder but we need to give them opportunities not just to have to be with other children but to play on their own if they want to. I think lastly it's great um, as educators um, and adults caring for our kids to actually be able to talk about and model different things. So, you know, being able to talk and model acceptance of different ways of communicating and socialising, you know, saying, oh, well, Lucy feels like playing by herself right now, but maybe she'll come and talk to you later or um, those kinds of things really promote acceptance and understanding in other children. And then maybe also for our ladybugs, deciphering some of the neurotypical social interactions that might be occurring with classmates. So maybe acknowledging, okay, yeah, it was really annoying when Catherine interrupted you. It was a bit of a surprise. But I'm wondering if Catherine maybe was interested in connecting with you. You know, what do you think? Um, and helping them understand that other children are going to attempt to engage them in different ways and how they can learn to understand and accept that too. That is fantastic advice. Thank you so much. And I really think you've just hit on something which we're so passionate about, which is that bringing that discussion about diversity and neurodiversity into our children's lives as early as possible and celebrating those differences and modelling that acceptance, all of that amazing stuff. So we're going to continue on our whirlwind tour of early childhood. And Sally, this question's for you. Could you please talk briefly about what a neuroaffirming early education setting looks like and actually how this inclusive approach can benefit all children? Yeah, so creating a neuroaffirming setting is really embedding your reflective practices as an educator and a team and viewing every child as capable and competent learners. We have to remember that autistic children have always been made to fit in a neurotypical box with standardised education that encourages young girls in society to mask and hide these behaviours and eventually it manifests as poor mental health later in life. So neurotypical children... Um, they're more capable at adapting to changes in the environment and routine. Um, so autistic or neurodivergent children um, tend to struggle with many more aspects in the alert environment. So why not create a classroom that considers children's differences and celebrates their differences, build on their strengths rather than looking at what they can't do? Um, it's really important to normalise differences from a really young age to really eliminate that stigma and stereotyping that children tend to develop over time because they're taught that differences and disabilities are a negative way of life. Um, so as an educator, you really have to ask yourself questions like how often do you work alongside disabled children in early childhood? Um, when working with autistic or disabled children, how do you ensure that they're um, they are learning and understanding empathy and equality for the other children. Um, 
what are negative impacts on the future of all children if we don't normalise or celebrate those differences. So um, when really we need to understand the bigger picture of why autistic girls mask and how we can ensure they have a stronger sense of identity, um, just like any other child in our care, become familiar with the children's rights and ensuring autistic girls continue to feel safe and supported and can uphold their dignity and be proud of who they are because, you know, that is what will change our world and how they view themselves as equals and capable. So it really is exposing other children to how we treat each other as equals. Amazing. Thank you so much for that. Um, and there's so much to be gained from, from sort of, incorporating these ideas and particularly being as you said being strengths-based normalizing difference it, it's it benefits everyone so thank you for that um Raylene I'm going to jump to you now for a question and um those of us who have ladybugs who were identified as autistic in an early age were inevitably told that early intervention is the key and that there's a short developmental window where we need to get in as much therapy as possible I know I was told that um what do you say to that um, it's a really tricky thing because I know so many families that attend paediatrician appointments and, and their child's identified as autistic and they are just told, go and see everyone, psych, speech, OT, physio, you name it, just go out and do it. And families often then will come um, to us, for example, and say, I've been told I need to see a psychologist. What do they do? Um, and, you know, it is true that the first five years of life involve rapid brain development, um, but that development occurs naturally through opportunities and through experiences and secure connections with family and carers. It doesn't only happen through therapeutic in, um, interventions. So we also now know that brains continue to develop and form new connections throughout childhood and adolescence and adulthood, which is new information over the last decade or two. Um, so we know that we can keep learning and our children can keep learning and developing way past those early, um, those early years. So therapy in the early years is definitely helpful um, to address areas of delay. Uh, but engaging in endless therapies just for the sake of it is not going to benefit the child. And it's actually taking time away from the child just being able to be a kid and for parents to actually just enjoy connecting with their children. Um, the recent therapy guidelines released by the Autism CRC actually have confirmed that more hours of therapy does not provide more benefit it's the quality and the suitability of the therapy that's going to make a difference. So the reality is that not all autistic children need therapy, and if they do, it's best to find something that is individually tailored to their needs. So, for example, a child that has difficulty communicating due to a speech delay or apraxia or perhaps anxiety would certainly benefit from speech therapy to assist them um, in helping to find a consistent way for them to communicate their needs and wants, and that could be AAC or sign or increasing their vocabulary. And, you know, that would make a difference to the child's quality of life. So I would say that's something that you should engage with as soon as possible. But that child might not need occupational therapy or psychology or anything else at that time. Um, one area that I am really interested and passionate about is um, play and it's actually something that is the focus of a lot of interventions in early childhood. Um, autistic children are often re referred to improve their play skills 
or to develop skills to play with peers, uh, but the skills they're being taught are actually neurotypical, usually pretend play skills. Um, it's likely that that's because differences in pretend play development are actually a sign of neurodivergence in young children, but I don't believe that we should be focusing on teaching neurotypical skills. We should be focusing on what autistic children enjoy doing, not what they don't do, and really there isn't a right way to play. So I think we need to, to be really aware that there's lots of different ways to play and those different ways are really beneficial to children. So sensory play, construction play, our physical play, climbing and jumping and all of those sorts of things that a lot of our kids love to do, um, creative art play uh, and playing games, all of those things are still important to development. So what we actually need to do is be providing opportunities for all types of play in early childhood settings and allowing our autistic girls to engage in whatever is meaningful and enjoyable for them, not dictating what they need to be doing. Thank you, Raylene. That is really, really fantastic to get your knowledge on this. And um, it's, yeah, there's there's a lot to unpack there. Look, we've run out of time. We, uh, we've covered some really big stuff. And I know that this is just the beginning of this topic. So thank you so much, Raylene and Sally. Thanks, Natasha. Sally, thank you. Hi, I'm Katie Kulas from Yellow Ladybugs. Welcome to this focused half-hour session on the second of our three panels that cover the journey our ladybugs make from early childhood through to the tween and then the teen years. For this session, we are excited to do a deep dive into tweenhood. Joining me is Tiana Andrews, who is a proud autistic dyslexic adhd and an occupational therapist. Tiana loves collaborating with teens and future teens to thrive in all elements within their day-to-day life. She is passionate about supporting tweens to access and receive whatever they need in a neuro-affirming way, yay, so they can be their true and authentic selves. Hi, Tiana. Welcome. Hi, Katie. Thank you so much for having me here today. Great to have you here. And we are here to welcome back Frances Brennan. Frances has been an incredible friend to Yellow Ladybugs, having presented at each of our conferences. And we keep asking her to come back for more. She is super good. So as an autistic and ADHD pediatric speech pathologist, Frances will share her valuable personal and professional experience today on how we can support our ladybug tweens. Welcome back, Frances. Thanks, Katie. I'm really excited to talk about this age group. We sometimes get a little bit lost in the middle. so They do get lost. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to discussing how we can best support our autistic tweens too. This can be such a tricky age for our ladybugs with big topics like puberty, friendship, belonging, self-advocacy and self-identifying coming to the forefront. Today is all about sharing ideas and looking to the protective measures we can put in place to support the mental health of our tweens as they head towards those tricky teen years. Whew, that was a mouthful, so I'm going to jump into question one. Um, and 
you know, we know that there are key developmental shifts that occur as our ladybugs enter the tween years. Let's just jump straight in and talk about puberty or pre-puberty. We know there are a lot of useful resources out there developed specifically for autistic young people, but we would love your insights into how we can practically support our ladybug tweens. I'm going to ask each of our panellists a specific part of this question. So, Tiana, I'll first start with you. As an OT, we can look at hygiene. For, let's look at hygiene for a moment, which frequently comes up in our parent community. Is it a balance between picking our battles and radical acceptance? What's your thoughts on this topic, Tiana? I think um, not being a parent myself but working with parents, um, I can see that it's such a fine balance, um, even going through that stage myself, of picking your battles in ways to support and aim to try and do that but then not having that support offer met very well um so yeah so the key thing I think when I work with my teens and tweens and their families is just comfort in whatever form that looks like so because puberty has so many different factors such as um like pushing sensory preferences to their maximum with like sensations of periods and products and um like the new types of clothes you have to wear like crop tops or a nightmare um, sometimes and then changes in routine to include like self-management so um, just because of the age and it's kind of that forced change that happens and it, there's a lot of grief that comes from getting out of childhood and everything and then there's the motor skills as well like being able to use products and having that endurance and grasp is such an a finite part of using a lot of products, um, especially sanitary ones. So the most important thing is to provide um, many ways that this conversation can happen um, about so this change that's coming, whether it's book, it's discussion, it's writing, it's peer groups, um, and it's providing choice and control because a lot of the time this change happens and we can't feel that control with, with the change that happens. It just happens. So being able to choose what type of pads, what colour, um products you get what smell of deodorant um what time you do the task really having like yes we have to do this but what are some ways we can give that control back to them um and then allowing their preference as well so allowing them to choose the type of crop top material or um bra or like so providing that choice and control as well um just gives them back that sense of control yeah, that's really good advice. And for parents listening at home, I think what your the key takeaway is for me was that whatever decision I'm making, I'm always considering choice, comfort, and control and using that as the key areas um, in helping them through this change. So thank you, Tiana. What a great way to, to begin. Francis, I've got a question for you now. Um, what have you come across in terms of beginning the beginning of hormonal and other developmental changes during puberty and the link to mental health in this teen, tween age group, you know, mainly between grade, grades three to six? This is massive there are so many layers to this and it's definitely something that I work a lot with in my clinical practice I think um, because as, as I'm speaking more people are realizing the struggles that I had and so they're like oh this is someone who can talk to my child who gets it but I think you know if we think about hormonal changes and puberty obviously we get with any 
child or any person, we start to get some, you know, some big feelings, some emotional dysregulation, all of those sorts of things. Add that to like a population of people who already struggle with this at the best of times, we're obviously going to see a little bit um, of that being exaggerated, I suppose. But one of the things that I definitely hear anecdotally, and there's been a very, very, very small amount of research about is um, the fact that potentially autistic girls enter puberty before age-wise um, the non-autistic girls. And so there was actually a study done in 2020, I think, that showed that it was on average 9.5 months earlier, which is a lot. And I definitely know that I work with young people who it seems to be even sort of more advanced than that. And so from my perspective, when you think about, you know, all the things like Tiana said, like the executive functioning in terms of managing a period, massive. And even, and then, you know, you add to that all the social nuance as well, like for whatever reason, there's this big shame about, you know, being seen with a sanitary product. And I remember in high school having to like hide it in the sleeve of my jumper or, you know, trying to hide it in my pocket. How do you get it from your bag into your pocket? You know, the executive functioning for all of that as well. And then we're also going you know, we know there might be an executive functioning deficit and we're looking at a younger child. That in itself is so difficult to manage. The brain is changing. We know that things are sort of hardwiring in the brain a little bit um, and we know that that's different for our autistic population. And then the other thing that came to mind for me was a child who has experienced mental health difficulty already who has been successfully medicated then goes through this growth spurt and all of a sudden the medications that were working are not being absorbed or, you know, used in the body in the same way that they were and all of a sudden they're not effective either. And while all of this is happening, your peers are also developing more social awareness, becoming more critical, less likely to accept difference and they're just watching it all happen to you. So, ugh. Oh, yeah, totally. And you made some really interesting points about how it is earlier. And even before any puberty is obvious, there will be patterns and changes in hormones we hear in our community. I wish I could go back in time and maybe track some of that a bit more. It's only now that we're looking Mm -hmm. in the teen years around, um, you know, a closer link within the cycle and mental health that we're starting to track it. But I don't see why we can't start looking at tracking things to see if there's any connection to these hormones. Um, You know, knowledge is power. So thank you so much for sharing that information, both of you. Great way to begin this question. But also before we move on to the next question, I just wanted to acknowledge that supporting tweens in navigating anything related to gender, sexuality, consent, healthy relationships. It's such an important part of the puberty discussion as well. And we have covered these topics in depth in previous panels. So what we're going to do is make sure we put a link to that um, because we've got so much more we want to talk about today. So that does bring me on to moving the next question. Navigating friendships and peer connections, which becomes a lot more complicated. As you just said, Frances, um, in fact, this is one of the reasons why our ladybugs are often only identified as neurodivergent in their tween years. How can we lay the foundation for them and what support can we give them with navigating this minefield before they enter even the trickier teen years? Frances, we're going to jump back to you. Just going to disclose that I feel personally triggered <laughs> by this question because this was me. Um, I was fine until tween years. Um, and I wasn't, you know, when we look back at it, but this is when, you know, she hit the fan for lack of a better way to put it. And 
it's one of, I think this is actually where in my clinical practice, I actually become like fiercely protective of kids in this stage. And I seem to find myself sort of advocating harder than I have, um, you know, when they're in the younger years. And generally it's, it's partially advocating with schools, but a lot with parents as well. And, you know, in terms of, you know, what we can do around supporting kids in this, well, I, I really thought about this and thought if there was a better way than what I'm doing, but I can tell you what I'm doing and what I'm doing is sharing my experience with kids. I'm trying to seek connection. I'm trying to explain to them that some people are not nice people and there's nothing I can do to make them nice people and they don't understand why we are the way that we are and they don't care to understand why we are the way we are and I can't change that and you can't change that and that's not just kids that might be the parents of kids you know that might be teachers at school and really saying to this child it's not you it's them so I'm instilling that sort of you know that view in them that yeah, you know, there are things that we sometimes have to be aware of and, you know, we're not never at fault, but there are going to be people that we can't change and that we just need to walk away from that and move on and that sometimes it's just really, really sucky. And then I try and tell them that for what it's worth, it gets better. So, you know, this is the same message I, I do with my young sort of my queer kids that, you know, I went through that as well and tried to hide that. And do you know what? It gets better. You actually get to a point in your life where you choose the people that are there. And I even say to them, sometimes it's when you go to high school and there's a bigger group of kids, but, you know, high school was horrible for me and I level with the kids and tell them that, but I go, but it ended. And I went to uni and I found people that were slightly more like me. And so that was a little bit better, but still didn't love it. And then, now I have my empire, the speech tree, where I get to pick who's there and I surround myself with people that that like me and, you know, they don't just tolerate me but they celebrate me. And so I guess I try and instill in the kids that, you know, it's not necessarily going to be easy but that they are great and try and give them something to take through those hard times in knowing that it's actually, it's not just them. Yeah, so powerful because so many kids would be internalising that there's something wrong or broken with them and that's what we hear from, you know, amazing advocates like you who share their experiences looking back on these years that they felt broken. But if I love your advice around if it's a parent or a teacher or someone that's in that supportive role to make sure you relate and connect on that level to show that it's not them that's yeah. the problem and that is powerful protective factor there right there so thank you so much Frances. Tiana what's your thoughts on this tricky situation? Yeah um, I am totally in alignment with Frances how when I read that question I was like Whew, it um, it does strike a chord like because we I think even as adults we just look back and go man like how did we get through that um, it was it's hard and then he hearing other people like um, parents or people who knew us go, oh, he was always so confident. It's like, but I was terrified. And, um, yeah, so I remember it just being so complex and so overwhelming and just especially when you're a teen and you're trying to be in the know and, like, be like, oh, like, if I just knew what they did, 
I can just do that and I can fit in and I can have that friend. And I know looking back at my experience, I always start on the outer looking in and waiting for my big, and what I always say to my kids, it's like waiting for my encyclopedia to turn up. So I know like, oh, they said this quick, like, what do I say? And like, just being able to, I know that that's what I felt like is I just needed something to tell me what I needed to do. So someone would want to be my friend and want, want to actually be with me for me, not what I did um and yeah what I um what I have learned is that the more pressure I placed on myself um looking back made me like go along with what people said or did and it made me stand out more and it made me um yeah it made me face a lot more rejection and got me into some very bad situations where my safety or the safety of others was jeopardized it it wasn't pretty. Um, so yeah, fortunately, what I try and do and try and again, I love advocating in this area because I'm so passionate about it. Because from my experience, I think the way to navigate that pure connection for the mutually beneficial friendships that's not just on us to do, it's on both parties, is to really like know ourselves. And know our authentic self and just feel really um yeah validated and steady i i did this analogy the other day where it's like the um being on an um an iceberg and like if the more ice you have around you the less the little flames around the outside are going to make you unsteady so like it's um and while this may seem so unobtainable looking at it in this situation of like I just want to be like everyone else and I don't want to be like me or it isn't really unattainable. It's just so important to enhance our sense of self-acceptance and knowing our goals and values and desires. And this will drive how we interact with everyone and navigate through our lives and our actions and thoughts. Um, So it just knows what makes us feel good and um, what doesn't make us feel good who makes us feel good, who doesn't make us feel good. And, yeah, what? who are our people? Because that's how we're going to find our people is through knowing ourselves, being really strong in ourselves. And if we're met with that confrontation or that rejection from someone else, it's not going to, over time, it doesn't sting as much if we know who we are and we feel confident and we find our people based on our interests. Yeah. Thank you, Tiana. And I was sort of crying. I think both of your comments really hit home because as a parent watching this happen, you know, the new clicks start forming um, at that age group, grade three, four, um, you know, you can see your child get further and further on the outer. I wish I could go back time and and give my daughter the, the power to to be around people who did accept it. Sometimes we can't control that. It's so tricky. You want to rescue them. Um, and and knowing that that impacts the teen years even harder, like that desperation to fit in because they've got the trauma from the tween years and the primary school years of going through, like you explained, Tiana and, and Francis, you know, it hits us because we remember what it was like feeling like an outsider at that age. But the cost might not be obvious yet. It will hit in the teen years. And so we need to make sure that we teach our ladybugs what are green and red flags of friendships and we'll put it in the resources on with some info on that 
what it looks like when someone crosses their boundaries and how to get help and even introduce the concept in an age-appropriate way of things like unmasking and fawning because this is, you know, even rejection sensitivity, this is what's going to start to play even deeper parts. Before you get to those beautiful adult years like Frances was saying with the Empire and Tiana finding your people, it's just going to get a bit trickier even then some. So thank you so much. Um, having a bit of a, a cry already myself. So I'm going to jump into question three because we, um, we've got so much to cover still. So self-identity. We hear from our community that the tween years are often when our ladybugs might start to recognise that they are different to their peers and begin to consciously or unconsciously reject their autistic identity and mask or hide and who they are, truly are. And this is even for those who have known that they're autistic since they're young. Um, so I'm just curious how as parents or even teachers or professionals can we support our young people to navigate this? Tiana, we're going to jump to you first on that one. Yeah, definitely. I think validating how easy it is to just try and put on that mask again um, and just keep trying to fit in and how um, how it does feel like more desirable to not be different and everyone seems to have their stuff together and linking with our own experience as well I think is a powerful thing rather than just asking questions because I know for me when my mum asked me a million questions I was just like stop talking um, so even just linking with your own experience will help them just explore as well having those open and honest conversations um, but yeah I think the teen and tween years is just that it's like, who am I? Where do I fit? How do I fit? Um, that person seems to have it all together. Where am I headed? Uplift. Uplift, support the person to notice the amazing things that they do and the way that um, them as an individual can achieve in all domains. So be specific about what you say as well. Like instead of saying, good job, well done, it's like, what? <laughs> um, be specific. If they provide you with it, uh, like a little kid they provide you with an artwork always be like I really like the detail how you shaded in that part of the corner or like just be really specific to help them to pick up the individual things because that dialogue becomes their dialogue as well over time they remember oh my god so good thank you so much for that analogy really helpful um Francis what's your um advice around the whole self-identity and not wanting to feel different so valid. Um, like I, you should have seen me in high school. I went to a Catholic or girls school and at one point I had like gelled up dreadlocks and I wore this big like gothic necklace and, you know, it was all the things that like my family would not. Um, and all of that was about figuring out who I was and trying to assert who I was and not be told by somebody else who I was. So I have conversations like this a lot uh, with the autistic young people that I work with. And I guess in a way I'm fortunate. Um, you know, I had a young man say to me recently, he's like, oh, my psychologist tells me it's going to get better, but what does he know? He's not autistic. And he goes, at least when you tell me stuff, I I know that it's going to, you know, that you've lived it, that you've whatever. So I think, you know, I have these conversations quite freely with children and, and young people. And I guess the thing is for me, if they're going to say to me, I don't think I'm autistic, I'm not going to dispute it with them. I might say, oh, really, why? I might try and find out, like, what part of it 
that doesn't they don't feel like matches like what's their perception of what it means to be autistic but also how are other people making them feel about being autistic so I was in a meeting recently and I'm really hoping the person doesn't watch this but I said to them in what I thought was a really nice sort of like bonding moment I said I love talking to you we always bounce ideas off each other and it's just it's always so productive and this person responded to me they were like yeah I think it's because I can look past your ADHD and get to the good stuff and I was like thanks like it's so good of you to look past my ADHD and this person I know they really like me I know that you know but it just made me feel terrible I just felt like giving them the middle finger and hanging up um and so I can understand if you're a young person and people everything you do they're like well that's because you're autistic or yeah that's probably happening because you're autistic no do you know what sometimes I'm just an angry teenager and it's got nothing to do with me being autistic or a younger you know an angry teenager um and so I guess for me, it's it's all about sort of unpacking how they feel about it. And the other thing is I say this to people all the time. I don't know how this will be received, so I hope it's received by, you know, anyone listening as the way that I'm intending it. But you are who you are regardless of a label. So, like, who you are, it's there. It's in you. And who you tell and who you show is a different thing. So if you want to go and live the next two years and you believe that you're not autistic and you don't disclose to anyone that you're autistic and that's going to be your identity for a while, then that's fine and that that is going to be your identity because that's what you put out to the world. But who you are truly will remain the same. And then the only other thing that I would say to them is like, cool, all right, well, that's, you know, that's that's fine that you think that will be like, if you ever change your mind, that's cool too, or if you want to talk about it again or if you notice some things that are tricky and it makes sense when we think of it as, you know, but like just leaving it open that like, okay, this is a conversation that we can have and not locking them in. Because I think when we butt heads, they're going to stand their ground and it's so much harder for them to come back around because you've made them feel small or whatever else because you've got opposing views as opposed to just being like, okay, cool, well, this is something that we can watch and monitor, you know. Yeah, totally. Such a good point. And um, I think we often have parents saying to us that, my, I want my child to have a strong autistic identity. I really want to make it a neuroaffirming household, but they're so against it. So what you've explained is we really need to validate their current experience and situation. It's important not to shove that down their throat. We can do it subtly. And all of that example you've given is just so spot on. I think um, that hopefully will help parents at least give them some sense of direction. Um, we are going to move on to the next question because... We've got a few more things I want to cover off. So we often start to see an increased sign of mental health distress at this age as well. So what practical advice, and Francis, we're going to go to you, bounce back to you on this. What practical advice do you have for parents and teachers around protective factors for mental health? And what do you think they might look like particularly for this group of kids around, you know, great three to six age range? Yeah, I think it's similar to what I said with the friendship thing. So it's it's having that unconditional positive regard and it's allowing space to, to hear concerns, to recognise their experience. I think looking at how I cope now as an adult, I think it's also around um, building in space to decompress. Like autistic burnout is a real thing and um, the shame that, you know, we sometimes feel following any sort of like period of stress or, you know, misstep, which which happens, you know, it happens to everyone, but it happens to us a lot more. Um, and giving space to actually stop and do nothing. I think people push against that a lot. They want, they want to see 
you know, young people doing well and what people perceive to be young people doing well is when they're active and engaged. And I know that for me to do well, I need to sometimes be completely inactive and disengaged and that that's how I cope. So I think it's about recognising that it looks different and, you know, we want to aim above coping, but coping looks different in in autistic people and recognising those needs. And then the other thing which I know I've talked about before in another topic, I don't remember what it was, Katie, but making sure that you understand um, the intentions of the person that you're dealing with, so the autistic person. So I've talked a lot about um, people in my personal life feeling rejected sometimes when I'm doing what I need to do to keep myself afloat, but that sometimes means pulling away from people. And I need people to take me at face value and believe me when I say this is actually just about me and I need to recharge and I'll come back and not feel rejected or, oh, did I trigger that? Did I do it? Because all of that puts more pressure on me to try and perform for you, which burns me out more. Yeah, and it's a compounding impact, isn't it? Um, Yeah. Yeah, sorry, continue. I was just going to say it needs to be okay to not be okay. Yeah. Totally. And and yeah. not being okay in the tween years, it might not be as extreme as the tween years. Like there not might be obvious signs, right? There might be, they'll still be there like we often hear stomach pains or headaches or, they're, you know, they're tired. It might not be those extreme examples that we see with our teens, but we have to honour and respect that because tweens are still trying to recover and not burn out as well. So, yeah, totally spot on, Francis. Tiana, what would you like to add to this conversation? Um, I think that was really, like, hit the nail on the head with that one. I, I don't like sayings, but I grew up around them, so I just use them and look at myself and go, why did I say that? But, um, yeah, I think it really is about, supporting that um, recovery time as well and having the choice, like I'm going to sound like a broken record, but choice and control over what that looks like for them and having lots of opportunities for change. Like it's not like, well, you said you like drawing, so why aren't you drawing? It's like, well, sometimes I don't want to do drawing. Um, So having that opportunity to vary in what that recovery time looks like and what activities are available um, and the choice and control can be so small or but it makes a huge difference. What colour texture am I going to use? What type of sandwich am I going to have in my lunchbox? What order am I going to do the activities to get my work done? How am I going to approach it? Like all that choice and control gives some element of like, I have this, like I have control over the situation. Um, And then providing like clear breakdown and instructions about like how to support people because sometimes especially in class, I remember things being just so ambiguous. Like, what do you mean you want me to do this? Like, where's all the steps in between? So providing that scaffolding support to enable them to do what they, like demonstrate that they can do it because they can and don't just make assumptions that they can't. Um, And then, yeah, providing ways for them to communicate in lots of different situations, whether it's drawing and then, and leaving it somewhere and not asking questions straight away. Like it, enable them to communicate what best way works for them whether and clarifying don't ask questions on top of that but clarifying what they've said if they said oh this was really hard or I can see why that was really hard allowing that pause for them to elaborate if they want to or have the conversation over time and then providing that key person for them to check in with um, is so important so I think it's really really good to have that key person at school at home having that person that you like, this person is on my side and I'm not alone. And 
yeah, and supporting them to make plans that impact their life. Absolutely. And I love your point about scaffolding because tween years is, I still feel like, is when you can have a little bit more influence as a parent or a teacher, you know, before they lock into those teen years where they're like, they know all the answers. So making sure that as parents, we scaffold and support their mental health by really trying to help them identify their glimmers, which is like what invest in their interests that help them find what brings them joy, you know, building up a really strong foundation, you know, to navigate those tricky years as it comes in so thank you for making that point and thank you to each of you for all your points today honestly so many great aha moments throughout the session so thank you so much for Francis for joining me today again thanks for having me thanks Francis and thank you so much Tiana for joining us in our first panel together Thank you so much for allowing me the opportunity to share this I really feel passionate about it and I love supporting everyone. Hi, I'm Katie Kulas from Yellow Ladybugs. Welcome to this targeted half-hour session, the third in three panels that cover the journey our ladybugs make from early childhood through to the tween and then the teen years. This last session is all about the teen years, a topic close to my heart. Joining me today is Sienna Chumley Conton. Sienna is a passionate youth advocate, leader, public speaker, educator, volunteer at Yellow Ladybugs, and CEO of the Student Voice Network. She is a full time Bachelor of Education, primary and special education student, and currently works in out of school hours care and disability support work. Wow. Sienna also has a wonderful connection to Yellow Lady bugs as I mentioned and has been one of our support staff at some of the recent social events and our first time panelist welcome Sienna. Hi thank you so much for having me I'm excited to be here. We're really excited to have you too and a very very warm welcome back to Shadia Hancock. Shadia is the proud owner and founder of Autism Actually and an ambassador and amazing friend to Yellow Ladybugs. They're currently studying a Bachelor of Speech Pathology with the long-term goal of specialising in AAC, autism and animal assisted therapy. They have a wonderful Brown Standard Poodle, Arwen, who is an assistant dog in training. I love that. Hi, Shadia. Welcome back. Hi, Katie. So excited to be back again. (laughs) Yeah, awesome. And I do love your dog. Um, We might need to pop a photo up on screen to show. Um, I'm always here for dog photos and any excuse to talk about my dog. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have to have that conversation another day. So we spoke in our last session about the tween years with a metaphorical temperature rising and then puberty hits, boom, bam, pot boils over. Why? The cost of masking and holding it together in primary years can lead to many ladybugs to this tipping point. Trauma may begin to surface as our ladybugs process memories from primary school year It is such an important topic, so let's explore what this means as we step into the teen years, and I'm going to jump straight into questions. The first question is a bit of a long one, but let's set the scene. Our autistic teens are in a constant state of identity development. They are figuring out who they are, 
what they believe in and how to make important decisions. While it is important for parents, teachers and allied health professionals to support and guide teens, it's equally important to give our ladybugs the skills to make positive choices to get their needs met on their own. I know both of you are passionate youth advocates and remembering back to your own teen years, where do we begin in supporting our ladybugs with their own advocacy skills? So we're going to start with Sienna first on this one. Hi, for me, I think the major part that brought me into self-advocacy and having the skills to advocate for myself, especially in the classroom and with teachers, was actually having confidence in who I was and knowing myself, um, my skills and what I needed and what I needed to succeed from each individual. And this came down from many different ways and people helped me to develop this over the years. And I think one of the major things that people can do to help young people is help and meet them where they're at, whether that's they're struggling with something and they can't work out what to do about them, about it. Maybe sit there, brainstorm some ideas of some skills or some needs they may need met in the classroom and help them go through that. I had a teacher in my later years who pushed me to advocate for myself with one of my other teachers. And this allowed me to change the situation and improve my accessibility and my needs being met in that specific classroom environment. And so it's knowing yourself, knowing your needs and having a way of communicating them. And you can also facilitate that. In the younger years, I never really saw my needs, knew my needs or anything like that. But having that brainstorming beforehand and even having that written out on a sheet of paper that your young person can hand to teachers, if that's easier for them, will help them to then develop those skills. They then know their needs and how to communicate them and you've modelled that for them throughout the years. Yeah. Such a good answer. I love this. It, it sounds so simple, but it's not often done. Like I love how you've said you need to help your ladybug know themselves, know their needs and find a way to communicate that in a way that works for them. So that is just brilliant advice to begin today's discussion. Shadia, we'll jump over to you to answer that part of the question. Well, my answer is actually pretty similar to Sienna's, which is lovely. So I'm just pretty much echoing what they're saying. Um, I guess the most important part is that you, I always come from a place of presuming competence. And I think with young people, that is especially important. And with teens, giving them agency and autonomy over important decision-making relating to their schooling, life choices, it, it, it is extremely powerful because once you have control over your own life and have a bit of a plan going forward in a supportive environment, that's when you really learn more about yourself. And also trial and error, like there will be times when you will make mistakes but that's normal. And I think modelling that as well is really important, especially for the perfectionists in our community, of which there are many. I'm one of them. Um, and I think using different forms of communication when developing these self-advocacy skills. So, I mean, it doesn't have to be in a space like this where you're public speaking and talking about autism. It can be small steps. Like when I was in high school, I started by writing out what my strengths and challenges were, what I wanted my teachers to know. And then my mother took it into a meeting and said, this is what Shadia wanted to share with you. And then eventually I became more comfortable speaking to them directly. But a lot of my communication was not actually face-to-face. -face. It was via email or sharing relatable videos, for example. And I think 
now we've got so many more autistic advocates in this space compared to when I was growing up. It's so much easier to do that, which is just wonderful. Um, and young autistic advocates online, which I just love seeing. Um, and so I think having autistic role models to look up to for support or guidance, whether that's mentors or celebrity examples, uh, autistic advocates in our community, even fictional characters that we can relate to, I think is is a really powerful thing to be able to model for our young people and destigmatize it. And the fact that actually being different is awesome and we're all different and we all have our unique strengths, challenges, interests. So I think that's really important to keep in mind. And I think too, encouraging self-reflection. So if we say something, not, not making your own interpretation, actually asking them, what does that mean for you? Does it mean X, Y, or Z? Because sometimes what we think a young person means is very different to what the reality is. So um, that's my bit. Yeah. Wow. No, really good. You said so many good points there to back up what Sienna said. Agency, autonomy, such powerful words. I love how you said trial and error because many of our ladybugs may doubt themselves and feel not important enough to seek what they need, especially at a younger age. And parents and teachers can really help our teens become competent self-advocates by creating spaces where our ladybugs feel comfortable practicing their self-advocacy skills. And you can do that by sharing decision-making power in things that might not be related to advocacy at school, even what's to have what to have for dinner, for example, at a young age. But I love that you're talking about modeling that and trialing. And yes, there may be errors. So thank you. Beautiful, beautiful answers from both of you on that one. So we are going to jump into question two, which is all about self-esteem and the cost of masking. Such a big one. We spoke about masking in our tween panel just then and want to extend that now as we know the mask can get more complex and harder to wear as our ladybugs land into a world with more social structures and demands. In a recent blog, actually, the it was from the pierced protagonist, they made a great point on this topic saying the weight of being someone you are not all the time can become destructive. It kills you from the inside out, which is why so many masking autistics fall off the wagon in their teen years. So considering all of these pressures and the fact that we know there is evidence that says our mental health is tied into all of this, how do we support our ladybug teens through this tricky stage of life? How do we help them build stronger, self-esteem considering the cost of masking and Shadi I'm going to jump to you first. Uh, I think it's safe to say that pretty much most autistic people I know didn't enjoy their teen years a lot of non-autistic people don't enjoy their teen years it's a challenging time and I think that's important to be honest about that um, for a lot of autistic people I know as well, we don't tend to find friends until we're older, uh, particularly if we're more interest-based in terms of what we're looking for in a friendship, if we're looking for something more akin to a deeper connection. That's not necessarily something that occurs with non-autistic teenagers. So I think it's really important that we talk openly about what autistic communication looks like, what is important for that autistic person in terms of friendships, connections, academic goals, non-academic goals, um, executive functioning differences, potential strengths and challenges. I, I think having that knowledge and being able to openly share that is really powerful. And I think 
Uh, I recently read Sandra Jones's book, Growing Into Autism, and she made a super important point in, in that we need to recognise that we, autis- we are autistic people functioning the best we can in our given environment. We're not failed neurotypical people. We are perfectly normal autistic people. And I think that's a really important message to send to our young people because I know that when I was a teenager, I used to think, why, why are things so hard for me? Why can't I be like my peers? And it was really important that I had people in my life and mentors go, because you're autistic, you're not normal. And thank goodness, because otherwise you wouldn't be you. So I think it's really important that we are also able to facilitate those spaces where you can unmask and talk authentically about your likes and what you find challenging and sharing a space with people who you can relate to as well. So whether that's an autistic-led group or space, um, an interest-based activity group, even just a home environment, and acknowledging too that some autistic people don't want a lot of friends or connections, and that's perfectly okay too. Uh, a few autistic people I know only have online connections, and they they may hear from me or uh, for maybe once a month or once a year, but that's enough for them. So I think again, it's all about building that self knowledge and being able to destigmatize and go, that's perfectly valid what you're feeling. It doesn't. There's no such thing as normal anyway. So, so long as the young person is feeling happy and fulfilled, that's the main goal. Yeah, my gosh, so spot on and so wise. Um, Shadia, you're always spot on with these things because we want to gently support our young people through this and to help them build a healthy and stable stable foundation of self-worth. And you've given some really practical ways to do that and tap into that foundation. Um, I'll talk a bit more about that later, but Sienna, jumping into you. I guess I came from this from a similar but different perspective in that I agree 100% with the destigmatizing, um, especially from my perspective. I grew up with quite a large friendship group in high school and I enjoyed those social spaces. I enjoyed parties, but I wasn't catering to my own needs. I would finish and I'd be exhausted and I would turn back up to school the next day and I would just feel like I was just dragging myself through the whole day. Couldn't tell you what I learned in any of the classes, but I was there. And so I think another massive part of it is understanding that you do a lot of the time and you can want to do the same things, but also acknowledging that there are sometimes additional needs that you do have and you do need to take that time because otherwise you will be exhausted. I finished year 12 and basically just sat around for a month because I was like, whoa, like I didn't realise how overwhelmed everything was until it stopped. I just, I like didn't even realize I had really bad headaches every day because they were every day. And then as soon as they stopped, I was like, hmm, that wasn't normal. Shouldn't have done that. And so just being able to honor yourself and your needs and taking that time and space and acknowledging that sometimes you do have those differences and that's very complex. And for me, that came from having role models um, in the community that could model taking that time themselves and me going, okay, they're doing it, I can do it and that's okay. And I guess that's kind of my take on it. Yeah. Yeah, wow. I think both of you spoke so well about the whole point of modelling. I think that that is a great example because you also mentioned honouring your your needs and yourself and it's great that you get to that point where you can do that and I think by you taking that time off is an excellent example because our teen years, um, even with all the best supports that you can 
put in place for your ladybug during the primary school years. They may still get to teen years, um, even with all the neuroaffirming supports and feel burnt out and exhausted and will need that time. You You might need to radically accept that as a parent and you might need to help guide them to have that deep rest and reset because they might not know themselves yet or their needs. And you might need to support them through that if you're listening at home because it is a big transition from primary school to high school. Like you said, Sienna, from high school to um, finishing high school, it's a transition. And they may not even be aware what feeling calm is until we strip that back for them and give them that time for deep rest. I knew to expect that with my second ladybug, but I didn't know when I saw that happening and my first one hit burnout and I had to give them deep rest to reset and unmask and find their their baseline again. And that meant we had to reframe our idea of what we needed to do to support them. So if you're questioning that at home, give yourself permission to do that. It is powerful. All right, so thank you both of you for those answers. Um, We know that the gap does widen at this teenage in terms of learning, executive functioning differences, self-esteem, and all what you've explained is so powerful. We're going to jump now to question three, and it's on risk and impulsivity. So in my teen years, I was an unidentified autistic. I was a complete goody-goody and rule follower. I had a fear of stepping out of line. My anxiety, people-pleasing, fawning, perfectionism drove me to always stay on the straight and narrow. And I suspect for some neurodivergent teens, they might share a similar path to me. Not that I'm recommending that's the way to go, but if we turn to the other extreme, we don't talk about this enough, to be honest. If we turn to the perspective where some of our teens will be exposed to new people as teenagers, new influences, situations beyond our reach and care as parents, they may even turn to potential risky behaviour, even to fit in after primary school years of feeling left out, impulsive choices, and they might find themselves in dangerous situations. I think I'd like to unpack this a little with the two of you. Can we explore this a little? I would like to get your perspectives on this and how we might put some protective barriers here, especially as parents when we feel like we're losing a bit of that control and support. Sienna, I'm going to bounce to you first. The biggest thing that came to mind when I heard this question was open communication. And it's across every aspect of it. It's from where are you going? What are you doing? Not interrogating ways, but in a I need to know so that if something happens, I can come and get you. And having that. So I always knew at parties I could call my mum. She'd come pick me up. Didn't matter where I was. Didn't matter who I was with. Didn't matter if I'd lied about where I was. She would come and pick me up. I never lied about where I was because I knew that I didn't have to. Like it was okay and she would come. And having those open communications also about alcohol, drugs, the risks and the costs associated with them and just understanding all of those elements I think is very important. Such a good point, Sienna. We might jump back to you if you've got anything else to add on that, but we'll jump to Shadia on this. What was your experience, Shadia, um, or even if you didn't live that experience, do you have any advice for our community? Similar to Sienna, I was, and probably you, Katie, I was very much a 
goody two shoes to a fault, uh, which kind of created issues when I would try and police other people. <laughs> um, but I think when we got to the teen years, my mother was very conscious because being undiagnosed at that stage, she'd gone through a lot of um, the same issues as a teenager. And I think it was coming from the fact that I didn't realise that alcohol and drugs were a thing, really. Um, she prepared me for what to do if I was offered them. Um, she asked me whether, you know, uh, what I, answer I would say. And so we rehearsed saying no and even things like how to explain it. And we also had open discussions about, uh, I guess she's always, we have a really good relationship because she's always treated me like an equal. So whenever she has told me why something is potentially harmful, she's always provided a bit of a scientific explanation for it, which for me, neuroscience is an area of interest for me. So we explain it in terms of while we're still developing, having alcohol and drugs can impact on our brain development and this is how they can interact. And also the fact that I'm differently wired, I may not know how I react to certain things, so I have to be careful. Um, so all of those things really gave me the confidence when I was confronted in those situations to not go, whoa, what am I supposed to do now? And 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 just say no. Um, so I think it's really important to be aware of some of the issues that are happening in schools because it, it is unfortunately pretty much everywhere and having those open conversations about what to do when you're confronted with those issues um things like sexual safety as well is really important so again um I wasn't really aware of those issues but we talked about consent and what, what to do if we're confronted by a certain situation, what to do if I feel unsafe. So, you know, I had her as an emergency contact and if I go to a, well, the one time I went to a party and decided, no, thank you, I was able to call her and say, can you come pick me up? Um, those sorts of things I think are really important to rehearse and, and have those open discussions. Emma Goodall has some really good resources on interoception and sexuality in relationships. And I think when I learned about her work, I realised that I struggle a lot with my own interoception. So sometimes even knowing when I'm feeling unsafe is really difficult for me. And I've had to focus on very obvious physiological responses. So for example, if I'm starting to stim more often or my heart's getting flighty or I'm starting to get sweaty, for example, they're usually indicates to me of, oh, okay, I'm feeling unsafe in this situation. Um, and for me, the biggest issue was friendships and connections connections so knowing what the red flags are but also what the green flags are um so things like um you know if you feel energized after spending time with a person or feeling calm and centered feeling like it's a two-way reciprocal communication being able to talk openly about your issues and not feeling like you're going to be judged um as well as the fact that reflecting on uh when i reflect back on friendships that i look at the past that were unsafe i was clearly in a freeze fawn state. I was clearly dissociating. Um, I was getting sort of hyperventilation, sweaty palms, but at the time I couldn't connect it. So we had to have those open conversations about how does this actually make you feel and do you realise that that's actually not what you should be feeling in a healthy relationship? So I think they're all really important conversations to have and Emma Goodall has some really good exercises on developing interoception. But I think also being aware that I I pretty much 
go via energy levels and not emotions was a really powerful discovery for me. And um, so I do a lot of work with animals and things because they're pretty similar and they're non-judgmental. And again, finding those activities that recharge you and make you feel better and safe. Absolutely, Shadia. And my goodness, you've got some great tips there. And I know you've contributed to our book that will be out um, when this is going live on this topic, because it is so many areas that we need to cover. Um, and parents might not be the person that, 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 yes, that's ideal if you can keep that open communication, but it's okay if there's also another trusted person that you surround your teen with and find ways that they can communicate with them and build a, a village if you like I know my ladybug was feeling unsafe on the train um, last week and contacted their teacher like that is an incredible relationship um, to have and that is the power of having a, a, a team um, around them so we need to make sure that we we support our teens how they want to communicate and also just going back to Sienna and and you mentioned something about um being if you're at a party and feeling unsafe being able to contact your mum um I've heard a really good point of having a keyword that you keep with your child so that they just need to even text the keyword they don't even need to say I'm unsafe Lala. it's like a word between you two that you know okay come and get me now because sometimes finding the words in the moment might be too stressful so Great advice there. We're going to jump straight to question four um, because this is a topic many of our um, teens start thinking about, pressure about the future. And as we move into the older teen years, especially our ladybugs may feel intense pressure, especially thinking about life beyond school. Will they ever find acceptance, their people? Will they succeed in education? Will they find meaningful, secure employment? Will they find love? Transitions can be hard at the best of time. But can you think about practical advice that we can give to teachers, families, and even older teens to help make this transition smoother and perhaps ease some of the pressure? Shadia, over to you. I guess being aware that what is defined as success is very subjective and I think there's a bit of a societal pressure to conform to a certain type of success, but the reality is that it really should be dictated by what makes you feel fulfilled and what increases your quality of life. And that's going to look different for everyone. So, you know, if it means that you want to go on to tertiary education or you might want to do an apprenticeship instead or do work experience or whatever it is, it's all valid forms of living out your life. There's no one right way to become an adult and work. Um, and I think at high school, this is a good chance to kind of explore those different modalities and go, maybe you could try a, a subject at your a tertiary subject, maybe at a university or a TAFE or are there some early pathway options, work experience options, a part-time job, community experience? I know it was pretty popular at my school, so being able to actually go out into the community was really fulfilling for a lot of us as students to give back. Um, and I think that's important to keep in mind that success should be defined by what makes you feel happy and what um, makes you feel comfortable and whether that's having 30 friends or one friend or no friends or having a partner or not having a partner. 
it doesn't matter. It's what makes you feel content within yourself. And there's no right or wrong when it comes to that. Um, And I think being autistic, it's important to keep in mind that we are likely going to have a different trajectory when it comes to friendships and connections, and particularly when we're younger in the teen years. Uh, So you might be a person that needs to compartmentalise your connections and have work-based connections and interest-based connections. You might be closer to family members and see them as your friends. I know that for myself, my grandparents were my best friends, and I was content with that. Um, you may not want any friends and that's okay. If that makes you feel fulfilled and you're happy within yourself, that's fine. I think we need to get away from this pressure of having that there's a rule around how many connections you need to have, how many, you know, what what defines success in a job, school, academics. I think it all, again, you need to do what makes you feel fulfilled and that's going to look different for every single human being. So true, Shadia, and I think actually the the biggest challenge is getting parents and even teachers to reframe their thinking and their projection around that to um, their teens and not placing their expectations or, um, you know, their own desires onto that. So uh, I think that's just such good advice. Sienna, would you like to jump in on this last question? Absolutely. A massive thing that I was thinking about is really that failure is essential. And I say that wholeheartedly in that I had an experience working at a cafe when I was 14 and it was the most horrific thing I've ever done. And it was horrible. I hated it. I was so emotional. But that experience allowed me to see, okay, this is why I hated it. I'm not going to do that again. I don't want a job that has these elements to it. And I just have that experience as well. And So having that ability to see and just understand that trying something and it being a complete fail, as much as it's horrible in the moment, is very important to just growing as an individual and just for life. I spent a year studying something completely irrelevant to what I do now. I worked a job that's completely irrelevant. I lived in another state. And as much as that all seems completely unrelated to anything I do right now, it all greatly influenced me as a person and gave me skills and developed me in ways that I wouldn't have been able to see. And so like anyone, when you go through year 12 or high school or anything like that, you might have a goal, have something that you're striving for, or even not be sure where you want to go. And that's okay. Just give something a go, whatever it is. Even if it's you pick up a new hobby, you go play a sport, you never know what you're going to get from it. And like anything, it's okay to fail. You just learn from it and grow. Such a good point, especially for our perfectionist ladybugs. That is definitely a good point. Um, And I think that such beautiful practical advice. Thank you so much to the two of you. I think hopefully those listening at home and tuning in, it's great advice for your ladybug to hear, but also for yourself to reflect. And I know we talked to the parents in a previous panel, the teen years is tricky for everyone. We need to adjust our expectations as teachers and parents, and we need to appreciate that it is a difficult time for your ladybug. They are not trying to give you a hard time. They are probably going through the hardest time of their life. And to please use radical acceptance, compassion and connection when communicating with your ladybug, it will make all the difference. Thank you so much, Shadia, so much for joining us today as always. And Sienna, we appreciate it so much. And, um, yeah, thank you for being here today. 
Thank you for joining us for Episode 5. Be sure to check out the attached resources to this podcast for further information. And if you found this useful, please share with your community. In our next episode, we'll be exploring what does a neuroaffirming classroom look like? Four lived experience experts share their practical advice for teachers on how to be a detective and uncover the hidden or unmet needs of autistic students and how to make the hidden curriculum more accessible. Joining us will be Christina Kebble, Adina Levy, Renee Austin and Anara Tompkins. We look forward to you joining us then.